0: So welcome back to the Global Tech Leaders podcast for our specific Women in Tech series. Today we are joined by Lynn Chan, who is an entrepreneur and finance executive. More importantly, has spent her career as a CFO. Uh, I noticed uh, you've been to the University of Tasmania uh, to end up where you are now in the Bay Area in uh, Menlo Park, but uh, more importantly as our first CFO on the Women in Tech series. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you very much, Ross, appreciate it. It's well, an honor uh, to be part of this uh, podcast.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, it's our pleasure to host you. And I, and I think from our perspective, um, we are very excited to have a CFO profile um, on the show because that's one we have not had as of yet. We've been very well represented by uh, CMOs. Uh, CMO is a profile of a role that has um, tipped the scale now uh, with 51% represented by women, which is great to see. Um, wow. But the CFO one is one we're keen to get very much into. And, and we'll go into the nuances of that and what makes it unique now in a moment. But tell us a bit about your journey, uh, Lynn. You know, we always like to explore um, what your, um traversing of the finance world was in your career to bring you to where you are today. And as we often say, you don't wake up in grade school thinking you're going to be a CFO. It's often by chance and happenstance, et cetera. Tell us about your journey that brought you to become a CFO sure. to, to head up Hayden that you do today.
1: I, I grew up in Malaysia, a good old British Commonwealth country, right? Um, and... I've always wanted to be in business because my grand was that my great grandmother was very successful, uh, re- starting a small little shop and end up owning most of the island in Langkawi, which is now a big tourist resort in in Malaysia. But uh, we lost all our fortune after the Second World War when the Japanese took over Malaysia, and so it was a struggle for the com- uh, for the family to you know find itself again and and and. Uh, get uh, uh, financial security so i've always wanted to do that so i went to school and uh, i went to uh, uh, australia to uh, get my uh, degree in uh, bachelor of commerce and accounting all the way in university of tasmania because my father thought that i wouldn't get into too much trouble in tasmania (laughs)
0: it's far away
1: (laughs) it's far away and he thought it was safe enough and i ended up moving in the university owned uh, sublease house with four other Aussie guys sure. so there was I, I wanted to have that experience because I go, I'm go. i not going to go and try to hang around with a whole bunch of Malaysian students because you don't end up getting a lot of exposure so I immersed myself and lived in the house with four Aussie guys
0: I did and, the same uh, thing I went to university in Australia myself and wanted to make sure I didn't hang out with any Irish people and I'm better <laughs> for it so I, I can relate to your situation please fire ahead
1: where, where did you go to school in Australia
0: I went to the University of Queensland in Brisbane.
1: Oh, wow, nice and hot there. So Tasmania, yeah, Tasmania, <laughs> uh, yeah, Tas- Tasmania was a, a, a great place for me to, uh, uh, you know, um, develop myself because it's a, it's a place where there are hardly any Asians there. And, and uh, I would go to a pub in Tasmania and I'll be the only female um, Asian there. And and so I learned how to be, you know, confident to, to be comfortable in my own skin and be able to go anywhere by myself. Um, and so I joined a retail organization in Tasmania after I graduated. Um, and uh, at uh, one point, I uh, moved to Adelaide because my I, I met up with, my husband was one of the four guys in, in, in that uh, house ah. that I shared with. <laughs> And to this day, we're still together, so I haven't, uh, we haven't like uh, killed each other yet. Sometimes in the past, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, uh, we moved to Adelaide and I joined a company called Solar International, and it was uh, uh, a company at that time which was already acquired by a big British uh, multinational called Pilkington, which you might know of uh, or have heard of. And, uh, and, and, and Solar International. Uh, made a big uh, acquisition to uh, uh, invest in uh, the U.S. and buying a whole bunch of uh, uh, companies in the contact lens business. And so I was one of the few people invited to set up the operation here in Menlo Park in California. And so that was um, 1989, that was uh, quite a while ago. So I've been in the Valley since 1989. And, and I took Solar International Public you know, on the IPO, on the NASDAQ, and I go, I am here in the valley and I'm missing all the action in tech. I had to go to tech. And I can tell you, it was initially quite difficult for me to move from a medical device company to go into what they call the tech world, because the perception is the tech startup is very fast paced are you able to adjust because the decisions can come flying with you uh, and 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 decisions that you think that that you're going ahead with today it could be very different next week so there was a perception of whether uh, uh, somebody going in the tech world can 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 adjust and i um it, it was it uh, difficult to make that transition but having made that transition i i i joined a company called PCTel, which was the a company that i earlier mentioned to you that i set up the international tech structure so that company went from uh to 100 million in three uh, fast years which was on the silicon valley uh, business journal I was being one of the fastest growing company for a few years uh to get to 100 million in in three years so i set up all the infrastructure and that was my my foray into my first uh, step into tech and that was in um but uh, I joined PCTEL in 97, 1997. Uh, and then took PCTEL public. And that was my second IPO. And then I took an, uh, went to join an internet company. I thought, okay, I'm going to be an internet Brazilian air. Mm-hmm. And I joined in, uh, I joined in, in 2000. Uh, no, I joined in 99. Because I took PCTEL public. I stayed until the six months lockup is over. And I go, okay, CFO now. Because I, previously I was a copper controller. And go, okay, CFO now. Let let let's do the, the jump. And uh, as luck would have it, you know, we have the dot com crash. And instead right. of uh making a lot of money, I was caught up in uh, AMT, <laughs> alternative minimum tax. And so I I I I had a very um painful lesson, and, and to this day I, I still keep to that lesson right now, uh, uh in terms of whenever you make money, exit and plan the strategy. Don't think that you're, you've made money, that you're always going to continue making money. That's a fallacy. Just because I've had it I've, I, in my career, it went so smooth uh, until I hit like my 40s. I was like, oh, every year was a, you know, always a promotion you know, and, and many opportunities. And when the dot-com came, it <laughs> smashed you and it like go, okay, what, what do I have to do now? And and, and and so I've always, uh, I've always liked tech, you know. And and I've gone in, done a lot of different companies. I've done um interim CFO work. So if you ask me how many startups I've been involved with, I can't even tell you the number because it's been so many. And and uh, I even, uh, most recently in the most recent history, I was the uh, uh interim CFO for a group called uh. I'm sure you know with the HDMI licensing group where everybody is using HDMI for for the uh, uh, cable. So I was um, hired to basically spin out the HDMI group from a publicly traded semiconductor company called Lattice Semiconductor to its own private entity. So we set up all the infrastructure, uh, implemented NetSuite. Treasury was a challenge in, 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 in different parts of the world. Uh, set it all up and um, finished the project. And my friend from my PC tell days goes, "Hey, Lynn, I'm in a new hot space. Do you want to come and join me?" And then at the the multiples at that time for cannabis industry was very very high. And I go, "Okay, let's let's do cannabis." And say, "But but prepared that your reputation might be get might might get a hit because you're in cannabis."
0: Interesting.
1: And and I go, "Fine. I mean, you know." It's, it's 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 a change, and I'm always like uh, fascinated by uh, 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 the world of cannabis, where you have a lot of different people from uh, entertainment, restaurant going into it, and even some tech people going into cannabis, and they put a whole bunch of new technology in there. But after a while, after being in cannabis, uh, five years in cannabis, and uh, I uh, involved in many uh, like uh, fundraising, management struggles sold the company sold the, the company that I was with to a publicly traded company and then uh, uh, eventually uh, had enough of the cannabis world and went back to tech.
0: <laughs> wow okay so I got a lot there and um, for me it sounds like you're no stranger to adversity you know you talked about your family in the beginning uh, about losing everything in World War II, loved that story. And then you talked about starting again after the dot-com or the dot-bomb, as they called it, and keeping going. And I suppose from a finance perspective, um, it's a unique organi- part of the organization because you get to see problems, really, before they arise, right? So, sales all know they need to do the numbers right but you get to see exactly how long the runway is before um, the wolf is at the door, right? Before questions are being asked, Mm -hmm. et cetera. Mm -hmm. So what would you say is the most challenging part of a financial role? And how would you describe um, the merits of a CEO and why you love it so much, but why it's also so challenging?
1: You know, the the CFO role is actually quite unique compared to like the CMO role that you've been talking to the CFO role, you have a fiduciary duty to the board mm-hmm. and to the shareholders. So a lot of the times I've been caught in the uh cross crossfire. I mean not crossfire, in, in the crosshair. That's the no. word I was looking for. Yeah. Uh in a situation where the CEO may not be behaving in the best interest of the company. And uh you know, for the other positions, you don't have to do anything, but as a CFO, you are responsible for the, to the board. So I've been in a couple of tenuous situations where you have to step up and at the uh, risk of losing your job and going over your CEO's head to go to the board to raise a particular issue.
0: Sure. And what's that experience like? And how did you find that as a woman? In, in, Stressful. <laughs> <laughs> you,
1: you, you sometimes like sit down and you think, oh, is this is the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do, right? And then you go, okay, it's not going to be good for my, for, for, for my sanity. And then I can, I can lose my job. Uh, because a CEO, no CEO is going to like a CFO going above their head to report them to the, to the board
0: no one (laughs) how how did you approach that in the past and what advice would you give to others you know in terms of maybe it's not exactly that scenario but how have you dealt with and what were some of the outcomes you achieved and the learnings you had
1: so i i I do practice my buddhism in my in business uh Mm -hmm. i'm a i'm a a, a devout buddhist Mm -hmm. uh but i i I don't go to temple to pray I, i practice internally um, it's not difficult to make a decision if you know what your values are.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So sometimes you have to make very difficult decisions and then you have to step back and go, am I making the right decision for the company, for the shareholders, for the stakeholders? And, and if you step back and, and think about, am I making the right decision for the, most of the people involved? then definitely it's the right decision, even if it's the most difficult decision of, let's say, terminating a CEO or terminating a founder. And uh, I don't go into jobs interviewing saying that I've done that, of course, because you will scare everybody off. (laughs) But but that's, I think, the most challenging for a CFO to have to do that. Uh, uh, So if you want, do you want some specific examples?
0: Talk to me about a hard one and what were the outcomes? I mean, obviously don't get into names and specific. Uh, of course not. Yeah, there, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. you know, talk about, you know, a difficult scenario and maybe what got you through it and what were the outcomes and what would have been the outcome if you had not done it?
1: Uh, Yeah, I mean, okay, so I, I, there are many experiences. I think uh, oh, one very easy one that I can easily mention is I was the interim CFO for a uh, uh, a, a fuel cell company. And uh, uh, it was in a turnaround situation, and the company recently raised a bunch of money. The CEO did not disclose that he was using the funds to pay off for of, uh, litigation that personally uh, named him. He only disclosed a small portion of all the uh, uh, legal issues, but not the extent. And so most of the funds raised was going towards paying the litigation. And so uh, I had to disclose that to the chairman. And, and, and the chairman, can you believe some of them, they did, did not want to make the tough stand. I say, hey, you've been told uh, uh, what has happened. It's, you have to do your fiduciary duty mm-hmm. to the sh- investors and the shareholders to address this issue and discipline the CEO. And it took a lot of nudging, uh, but no no good deed goes unpunished. I can tell you that so uh, they replaced him and and, and the, the chairman put in one of his friends, and I always like very get very nervous when people put in their friends and family mm-hmm. uh, uh, and and uh, we. The new CEO didn't, didn't was very threatened by me. So of course the relationship didn't last and off I went to off to my next uh, uh project. But that's a situation that that has happened before. When you think you're doing the right thing, which I am doing the right thing in disclosing it, uh you have to be prepared to um bear the consequences of losing your job.
0: I get that. And, and that's like that's brave. Yeah
1: yeah and you know why I did it at the end of the day, you have to look at self in the mirror I mean, I'm sure you've heard this from many many people and 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 I think I have a reputation now of being a straight shooter no nonsense person that is not afraid to tackle difficult issues uh and and I uh built a lot of business relationships through the through the years here in Silicon Valley, and the actions that I've done uh only uh sort of uh, made my relationship stronger with some of the business community here in, in the valley. But it's not been easy. <laughs> it, and then another another situation, okay, it, this is called uh, a different, different company altogether. Uh, in Silicon Valley, you have a lot of big egos. And you tend to have uh, certain individuals, the R&D people against the marketing or the finance people. And and we were taking a company public. Uh, I've been in three IPOs. So so uh, I took a, I was taking a company public. At this time, I was a corporate controller. I knew that the model that the VP of sales was doing was incorrect. And we were about to file to go public. And we were missing the the, the gross margin by five percentage points, which is very significant in, in finance world. Like moving from you know 50% to 55% or kind of like number... Basically, uh, going um, the numbers were actually a lot worse than what we're presenting to the bankers. I took it to my boss at that time who was a CFO and I said, hey, we can't present these numbers because we're off by five percentage points and numbers are going to end up being a lot worse and we can't go public with these numbers because it will derail the whole IPO. And he didn't want to do anything about it because he wanted to set up the VP of sales to be terminated. Wow. So I thought long and hard, what do I do here? Do I just let it go and go with what my boss wanted me to do and ignore it? And I go, no, the company has worked so hard to go to, to, to all the employees have worked so hard to take this company public and everybody's been waiting so long for this day. I cannot let the petty rivalry between two individuals mess up for the whole company. So I went to the, the CEO who didn't give me any support. He says, uh. He, as a CEO, he should have stepped in and fixed the issue yep. to resolve the rivalry between the two. But no, you know what he told me? I Go and do your best. I am sure you can handle it. Wow. That's not leadership <laughs> so,
0: advice.
1: That's not leadership advice. So I had to go and reach out to the bankers. I go, banker, the numbers are wrong. And, and, and uh, in spite of my... So I really pissed off my CFO. Yeah. And and my boss, but I go. This is the right thing to do because if it's not right, it's not right.
0: <laughs> I love what you said and, and, earlier. And, I mean, that's I get it. You you're like if your values are clear, the decision process is easier, and you've given two concrete examples there.
1: Yeah, and so what happened? We push out the IPO out by another couple of months because this, the banker goes, I can't trust you guys, man. One Ooh. department says this, one department says that. And, mm. and, and to go public, the whole company has to be in sync. You have to be able to project the numbers and meet them. And the whole company has got to survive, uh, has got to strive to meet the same goals. And if you don't have it working well, it's a risk, risk for everybody. Uh, 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 and, and so the IPO got derailed the bankers brought in their own president to banish it, to provide some leadership. And uh, it was a successful IPO uh, uh, two quarters later.
0: <laughs> Fantastic. So- <laughs> and,
1: then, and then the whole story at the end of the day, uh, the CFO hated me. But then uh, in, the, uh, the, the, in another project that I was involved in, when I left and, and my CFO at that time for this particular company that, that hated me uh, was applying for that same job. And 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 the board was asking me about my opinion of him. And I go, okay, what shall I say here? You know, because I didn't have the best relationship with him. And so I go, okay, you know, in the valley, speak the truth, but provide a provide a more of a diplomatic answer. So my diplomatic answer was, uh, yeah, he's got his critics and his fans. And his fans say this, and his critics say that. And they never asked me whether I was a critic or fan.
0: Mm-hmm. That's so a I great go, okay, job it. done. Yeah. That's a great way of saying it. So for the benefit of our listeners um in Silicon Valley and, and now globally with um companies being global, um an IPO is seen as the coveted endpoint or a beginning of the end, so to speak, of how a company transitions. Um so I suppose what I'd like to focus on in my next question, as it were, was you've obviously transitioned from multiple different industries. And different industries lend themselves to different business models and different multiples at an IPO stage. So you talked about products, you talked about hardware, you were even in cannabis, and obviously now in the tech world and what we now talk to today about the SaaS world, so software as a service, having an incredibly high multiple. And what does that mean? And also, what are the stages of funding of an organization from a series A, B, C, D, um, and usually an IPO, I was fortunate enough to join HubSpot at Series D and go through an IPO myself and you know, seeing that the, the kind of difference that can make in terms of you know having best in shares and shareholder value and being able to realize that into the future. But maybe could you just take us through about some of the business models you've been involved in, but more importantly, how they raise money and how you go through an IPO and What is an IPO in terms of the people who are in the company and for the people in the public markets who are raising it? Why is tech such a great place to be when a company is pre-IPO? And and if you could just share that process with us um, for the benefit of our listeners.
1: Okay, yeah. I mean, when you look at tech, I mean, tech multiples are, are very high. Uh, I mean, that was the reason why I mentioned about going into other spaces because the the cannabis sector, for a short, brief moment, was very high, uh, even like a hundred times multiple of revenue. That's an insane number. That was like the wow. dot com, dot com
0: days, you know. And that's and, the value of so... the company. Just for our for our listeners in the US, the way that this works is that you have a value of the company is based on the multiple of its um, of its turnover, right?
1: Yes it, it, yeah, precisely, but it's not so simple as that. It also has got other factors like growth. The growth has to be there it's got to have crazy growth, like the company that I'm with uh Hayden now is projecting growth of from five million to thirty nine million to a hundred million because and and I've seen so many business models and and this is very, very doable for for this company that I'm with so the growth rates is a key factor, and the third factor is margins so Actually, I've got a fourth one to treasury. So you've got revenue, uh, 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 revenues, growth, profitability, mm-hmm. and treasury. What I mean by treasury is that the balance sheet has got to be healthy. Okay. So uh, uh, one of the firms that we were looking at recently, the CEO was asking me, uh, this is a little of an anecdote, but they will explain it. He said, I don't understand why this $4 billion company in revenues has a multiple... Or has a market cap of only eight hundred million. What the hell is going on there? is this And, and, and I said, well, a couple of things: sales are decreasing mm. and and nobody wants to invest in a company with sales that are decreasing, and then the margins are very uh, not very attractive and the third thing is that they've got a lot of debt on their books and then they are not able to service it by itself. so when you have those three factors uh, it will impact your multiple. So the company that I'm with now, Hayden, it's in what we call a new new category, uh, uh, Ross. Yep. It's called the has category, not the SaaS, but has for hardware as a service.
0: Love it. So explain to our listeners um, what that means. And if you have so, a new category and it's growing fast, obviously you've got a massive exponential there in terms of utilization. And you can deploy, I'd imagine, deploy hardware you get more subscribers. And you can, what they talk about is turning on the profit tap, right? So take us through that, if you will.
1: So the company that I'm with, Hayden, uh, we uh, have a, what do you call it? We are a SaaS model. So that's a new buzzword in the, in the Valley right now, hardware as a service. It's a great model because if you're familiar with the SaaS model, the SaaS yeah. model has a churn rate. So you have signed up so many people and so many people drop off because they don't want to pay the 99 or $200 fee or whatever fee that you have to pay. For the, for the Haswell, if you have installed an equipment and you paid for the equipment, you have very little churn rate and basically almost zero churn rate. Sorry. <laughs> I, I lost my train of thought because I was just thinking that I didn't quite answer your previous question before so Please I got go
0: described. right ahead go back to it all good that's what, what's what we speak from the heart on the show okay. go for
1: it. okay so your previous question you were asking about how do you get from C to A B C D E and 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 and, and go IPO right that there was I didn't quite answer that question uh, uh it's a usually can I can I go through that because I think Please. it's a very important journey in, that. in 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 the startup so I want to go back to that question because it's quite important. Somebody, a smart, uh, the, the founder has got a PhD in, in camera technology from, 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 from Japan. He's actually bilingual uh, and speaks a bit of uh, 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 Chinese even in addition to his English and, and Japanese skills. Uh, he, uh, 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 you have to have a very committed founder and it's almost blind faith and, and uh, an obsession mm-hmm. to start the company.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and nothing else matters except this company that you're starting. And, and you have this, and, and, and very successful companies in the tech area, you have this mindset. They are thinking 24-7, nonstop to solve the company's problem. And, and the first step is to get seed money this is friends and family and yeah. whoever you know that can plunk in the money to get you started to get your prototype going and in the past it's been a lot uh, difficult more difficult now because people want to see the proof of concept and all of that so you go through the series a uh, after the seed money you see you have some traction you go series a and and in Hayden's case we had a very attractive series a it was a uh, uh, we 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 raised altogether thirty million. Series A was twenty million, uh, and with a, a post-money valuation of ninety million, and then now we are doing our Series B, and then the multiple goes goes up in the in the has world. From the last report on the has, there's a, a report published by Silicon Valley Bank and Eclipse a, a VC specializing in this space. The minimum exit point of a has company was sixteen, uh, uh times of revenue. So that's what we are using now, using a lot of external uh, market data to validate our uh, valuation. And of course, we've got high profitability, high growth. And so we can justify going out and defending a high multiple. And so, so let's get in. Just, just a at-
0: question on that, just, just so our, our, our listeners understand. So series, So you've got seed money, which is friends and family jumping in where you're getting proof of concept effectively, product market fit. Series A is really where you raise your first round of funding, where you give away a percentage of the company, you get in money which allows you to fund maybe some stock for hardware, some further R and d, some you know infrastructure needs, et cetera, hiring of key staff and and so on. And after that, you obviously go out and sell more. and you you obviously there's a there's a lovely term called burn rate, which is how much it costs on a monthly basis to run the company. And normally, and this is the interesting thing that blew my mind when I joined a pre-IPO is that you often don't have to be profitable. So you're often losing money. And then just for our listeners, in terms of series B, you're putting more money in and you're losing more money potentially. Why would you what's that process like? And why would you so, do it so, so series
1: B. So series B is tend tend to be where you scale up operations. The proof of concept has already been done. Mm-hmm. And you need series B funds to be able to expand your sales. So we basically need the series B to uh, hire a whole bunch of people because we cannot support uh, 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 so many different customers because each, each customer, uh, the contract is in the tens of billions of dollars and we need to have a whole team supporting each uh, customer. So the first one was uh, the first one we started work, uh, is is with uh, the MTA in New York. We signed a contract with Conduent, so there's a team there. We're working with the DC uh, uh, Oakland and LA groups and all around the different uh, entities and so you have to have different teams and so the the funds are being used to be able to uh, start operations in in different cities and different parts of the world and and that's how you hope to you know, get your sales. And, and I just recently asked a, a banker, what is the minimum that, that I've, I've not taken companies public recently. So they're still looking around the 50 plus million range. So you got to get over to the 50 plus million range before you can even think about an IPO. So, and, and, and the whole IPO process is the company has to be, you know, remember I mentioned earlier, the company has to basically work together as one entity to be able to say, this is what we're going to do this is and then and meet that and 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 in a startup you're still trying to fit all the pieces together and and so in a startup like uh like Hayden we we have a mixture of people from big companies from startups so it's also trying to fit the gel and the culture of the company so that we're all working together and uh, uh to uh, try uh, to, to strive to the same goal and it's much easier said than done because it's, it's, uh, 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 startups are always very messy at the beginning. That's the part of the nature, you know, Absolutely. not many policies and processes. But for you to be able to scale up to be a $100 million company, you cannot be dependent on one person now. It has to be uh, uh, put in a whole bunch of process and it cannot be uh, uh, dependent on an individual anymore
0: absolutely and and um, sorry did i
1: address your question here okay, about you about how Absol- did you get to that <laughs> yeah.
0: it, it's interesting you mentioned the 50 million dollar mark that's very interesting because often it's talked about in terms of number of rounds but actually it's more relevant to talk about it in terms of absolute dollar you know uh, dollar evaluation um and and for the benefit of our listeners um the way that the, the this works is that you have a venture capitalist we've had many of them on the show in the past before and they have a fund, they have various investors in a fund, they go and actively seek out innovative, interesting companies that are growing, that they can put their money into so they can get a return for their investors in that fund. And when you go through an IPO process, what you're doing is you're listing on the stock exchange, usually the NASDAQ or the um, NYSE, and you're offloading that VC debt into the public markets on the stock exchange, which is now managed by the SEC, and uh, regulated by the SEC. And then what happens is the VC investors then suddenly get their money back and get a return on their investment and they're Mm -hmm. out of the game. And Mm -hmm. it means that you can now buy the shares in the company on the public markets, in your Mm -hmm. E-Trade account, et cetera. And all of the people who who join the company in an early uh, stage have got vested stock, meaning that they have to stay for a minimum, usually a one-year cliff on a four-year vesting Mm -hmm. schedule they'll stay for you know if they're in the company 4 years since the very beginning then mm-hmm. their their valuation through multiple rounds becomes worth more and more through each round and when they go out through the public markets they they get that converted into stock which they can now sell publicly which they couldn't do before and then hopefully that stock price might go out usually there's a perception value of you know somewhere in the 20s because people have in their heads that that's what shares should be worth and there's a lot of jiggery, pokery and engineering that goes on in terms of number of shares issued to make that number happen. Um, but the reality is your equity in the company stays the same, it's your shares may come down, um, but the value is a is dollar value that goes out to the marketplace, and then hopefully that $25 you know could grow into you know maybe $250, maybe $500, maybe $1,000 per share, and that's where you make real money. But normally you make money in the IPO, and then you, you keep going and ride that train. Yeah, back I mean that's. Well?
1: Yeah, I mean that's the plan. Yeah,
0: that's the plan, <laughs> that's right?
1: <a> plan. <laughs> that's the plan, and then of course you know a lot of companies now. You know when they uh, go public, sometimes the, the 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 pricing because of the volatility in the market it goes the other way. I I I uh, uh, did a, uh, I was uh, involved in selling a company to a publicly traded company for a certain number of shares, uh, and the stock price at the time that the the acquisition occurred was at the $2 price range and the, uh, the acquiring company and the uh, VCs who owned the company that was being sold uh, was gambling on the fact that a year later that the price was going to go up and all their problems be solved. But in fact, it went from $2 down to 25 cents. Wow. So, so that thing can happen and And I have already lost a lot of money because I invested in it and, and personally uh, in a different fund and and that happens. so you can't get too stressed about it you know I mean I think in, 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 in life, you always have a lot of unexpected turns ups and downs and and if you think that okay I've, I made the best decision I have at that time, you have to move on you if you don't move on and, and do the next thing, you'll be forever stressed and and the other point too I, i'm I'm old school. I like to develop a business that is profitable, that's cash flow positive. I'm not, I'm not one of those people that raise money and spend like crazy, and raise more money and spend money like crazy. I mean, that's not sustaining, you know. I love it, Lynn. You're
0: unique. There's no question. I'm a small business owner, and I believe in a in a rare commodity called profitability. But I hear you loud and clear.
1: (laughs) I was like, 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 because. When that happens, everything has to be honky dory The market's got to be good. And, but life is not like that because the market can crash. And what happens when you crash? You can't, cannot, cannot continue go by going back to the gravy train and raise more money. Yeah. <laughs> and then suddenly, everybody's lost their jobs. And the company's being sold for very little money to another company. And, you know, all hell broke loose. And then there's an the opportunity just wasted. I've seen so many companies where there's great technology, Bad management goes down. And, and, and I've asked a lot of people, I say, hey, given the same like, technology, where would you invest? It will all comes down to management. Whether they believe, uh, a, a VC value, they believe that the management can execute and, and they have confidence in the team to execute. And fundraising, I know I'm going digressing, but this is uh, things are on my, on my soapbox, you know, that I'm like preaching that that that. That 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 there is a relationship between the founders and the investors. There has to be a lot of trust there. Yeah. Once the trust is gone, be prepared for the worst.
0: <laughs> just shift just shifting gears here for a second here, and Lynn, um, as part of the Women in Tech series, I'd love to get your insight for women in the industry and women CEO, CFOs, should I say. And what would be your advice? You you talked a little bit earlier about having good values and making tough decisions and not being afraid of standing up to something when you see an injustice or something's immoral. What would be your advice to help more women get involved in finance and the CFO role? And, you know, how would you direct people who are considering this as a career direction?
1: Have a tough, um, have a tough layer, you know. Uh, Don't be so thin-skinned. And I I think uh, one of the advice I give my my young controller uh, is that, hey, in finance, don't expect to win any popularity contest because respect is most important. Our number one job most of the time is to say no. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and. And a lot of people want to be nice. They want to do the right thing, or, or no, sorry, they want to like uh, you know support their fellow employees. But and, and but you have to look at it in context. Is it good for the company overall? Is it a good business decision? So sometimes I would spend money even though other people may not agree because I believe in the business decision. So so, uh, and, and you know it takes money to make money, right? And so sometimes, uh, uh like for instance, in, another example is. Uh, if you have got somebody from the big company, they're so used to having a lot of structure. If you're running a hundred thousand employee company, you have to follow the rules and and processes. If not, all hell is going to break loose, right? With a startup, everything is flexible. So if somebody wants to come in and they're outside the range for $5,000 difference and he's a rock star, we'll hire that person. We'll make that difference because we want anybody coming in to be, to be happy and engaged and motivated to make the company successful.
0: I love that. I absolutely love that. So as we kind of wrap up here, um, we always like to ask our guests, what's a, a tool that you use, maybe it's a gadget or a gizmo. We've had you know, the, the uh, Apple watch, we've had you know, calendaring systems, we've had product dashboards, we've had spreadsheets, and I'm sure that's true in your world. And um, We've even had pen and paper several times on this particular series as their go-to tool of choice, but you know, in terms of your career, which has spanned considerable experience in the C-suite, and um, particularly in the CFO role in finance, what tools do you use to stay ahead of the game and be as productive as you are, maybe from a lifestyle and a professional perspective?
1: So, of course. All CFO people like their spreadsheets, you know, Mm -hmm. spreadsheets tell us how things are going, you know, spreadsheets tell me when I'm going to get in trouble, whether it's six months time or 12 months out down the road. Uh, So spreadsheets are definitely a a must. PowerPoints, you have to have that. And to be able to grasp new um, apps, because there's so many apps coming up all the time, you know, how to make your life a lot simpler. So, you know, but, but my go-to tool in addition to that is, you know, my
0: note
1: and my phone. I mean, I, I cannot live anywhere without my phone. You know, usually at the C-suite, that's the one thing too. Your life is never your own. So people who want to go up the ladder, they have to know that you have to be available and accessible at all times, that, that, that the job is not a nine-to-five job. Mm-hmm. If you want to go up to the senior ranks if shit happens, you have mm-hmm. to be available. Uh, 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 and you have to take care, if the issue comes up in the weekend, you have to devote your time. And then there was one time, there was a, a, a particular issue in the company and my phone was ringing off the hook and, and then my family says, oh, mom, you're very popular today. I go, yeah, it was a Saturday or a Sunday, but it happens. So, so that's the, 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 one of the parting words I would say to people is to be flexible, to keep an open mind and, 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 and to go with the flow. And, and also, I always remind uh, a lot of the people that... I, I mentor a lot of kids. Uh, uh, and I always Man. tell them uh, uh, that uh, you are... I mean, I'm boring it. I'm not the only person who came up with all these ideas. I'm borrowing it from little places everywhere, wherever. Right? Sure. As I always remind people, you are the main actor, the director, the mm-hmm. producer of your movie, of your life. Your parents, your advisors, they are your supporting actors and actresses. You know, you are the main actor, the director, the producer. You have to make your choices. It's not... I mean, as a woman minority, when I first started, I was upset with the world because I thought, hey, you know, they're discriminating against me because I'm Asian, because I'm Chinese. And, and don't ever let that even bother you because everybody has got their own biases and it's not reflective of you. And I used to take things personally. I, I don't now. I go, that's your problem. Yeah. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and 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 yeah. And 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 you have to stay to the course to what you believe in yourself, and you have to have confidence in yourself that you can execute. Uh, 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 so that's why I remind my 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 the young ones that I mentor and, and sometimes I, I tend to take on people who are hardworking, smart, and and want to work I mean work hard and and and, and these are traits that uh, uh that I admire and respect, degrees or no degrees, it doesn't matter. I advise a, 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 um um a recent employee in the cannabis world where he was promoted up the ranks and became manufacturing manager with without finishing his degree. And, and, and uh, other people with PhDs were looking down on him because he didn't finish his degree. But he could solve problems that the PhD guys couldn't solve. And I told him, and, and when cannabis world is not doing so well and he wanted to apply for a job in Facebook, I said, hey, you can solve all these problems in a small company that other big companies will have a whole bunch of people doing it. You can do it. So when I talked to him recently, he goes, ah, it's been so easy. You know, <laughs> and then I said, see? you can do
0: it <laughs> I love that so that's, that's all that, that,
1: you know, that, that's
0: that's all I want to say yeah mm-hmm. it's hugely valuable and I think you know yeah, I loved your old school approach and I think that you know for me you can only be responsible or held responsible for how you feel it's not your responsibility mm-hmm. to care about what other people and I don't mean that in a dismissive way I mean if somebody else chooses to feel a particular way that's not your choice you can only be it's responsible true. for that yeah And you've really, you've shown determination and grit, I think I would define that as. Um, I think that's a huge insight for people to take ownership and responsibility for their own future and the movie, as you called it, which I loved. Um, I can't thank you enough for being part of the show today. Huge insights, as I say, and I look forward to speaking with you again in the future.
1: Thank you so much. Uh, Appreciate your time. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to the Global Tech Leaders Podcast, designed for both established and aspiring career-focused tech rock stars, as well as helping leadership figure out how to speak global in today's multicultural world. For further details, check out sf-talent.com.